tried to address from the very beginning that if you go to a place you, you've got to go in with some understanding of what what you're doing and how you're looking at the place and you've got to have an interest in the the religion the history the the culture you, you g'day and welcome to the good life andrew lee in conversation a podcast about living a happier healthier and more ethical life our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now. Let's dive in to today's conversation. There aren't many sectors where an Australian firm is number one in the world, but travel guides are an exception. In 1972, Maureen and Tony Wheeler founded Lonely Planet. The company has since sold more than 150 million books, and the Wheelers have since sold the company itself. Uh, but my guest today, Tony Wheeler, still writes and talks about travel, uh, which to me is an essential component of living a good life. He's also a philanthropist and cyclist, and there's probably no one who better epitomises the term worldliness. Tony, thanks so much for joining me today on the Good Life podcast. Very pleased to be here. So when it comes to travel, yours is clearly not the first travel book to hit the, hit the market. Uh, who are your role models in the world of travel, either as travel writers or as travellers themselves? Well, travel travel writing goes back a long way. I mean, we can go back to the you know, the ancient Greeks and Romans who liked to see a, a good temple or ruin before it was ruined. Um, we we had that period of the the, the British um, gentlemen doing their their tours of Europe. We we've had you know much more recent travel than that. We you know my era, the hippie trail of the the sixties and seventies, which was how I how I ended up in Australia. So there's been lots of lots of different phases of travel. Uh, you know, if I'm I'm thinking about guidebooks specifically in print, you know, we the, the slightly older ones, the Bedekers, the classic guidebooks of the Victorian era. Um, but I, I think in a way you've got to hand something to Arthur Fromer, the American GI, who handed out his notes to other GIs in Europe and moved yes. on to Europe on $10 a day and however many dollars a day eventually grew to be. But he was a pioneer and he looked at travel, not just at what you went to see, which was the Bedekus thing. You know, they, they covered the churches and the temples and the museums and the galleries very well, but didn't worry about the bars and the restaurants and the nightclubs. And I think, you know, that was one of the the changes in travel writing that happened before we came along, but um, certainly was part of our part of our story. You mentioned before the uh, the extraordinary trip from London all the way through to Sydney, which kicked off uh, your first travel guide. The journey itself. What made you decide to uh, to travel uh, across land from uh, from London first to uh, Kathmandu and then on to Australia? It, it was very much a, a trip of the times that a lot of people were, it, it seems now like, it seems at the time like there were a lot of people compared to the number of tourists who started traveling 10 or 20 years later, it was a minuscule number. 
But um, it did seem like a lot of people were doing that sort of travel. And it was the, the boomers, you know, I'm, I'm a classic boomer born just after World War II. Um, they were going further than their parents had gone. The, the world had sort of opened up. We, they, we weren't just looking at travel in the familiar European places. We were looking at Africa as well. We were looking at Asia. Um, if you were flying, the jumbo jets were coming in, so there you could travel further and um, cheaper than you've been able to do in the past. And there were a lot of cultural connections. I think, you know, the, the, the whole rock music thing, uh, riding the Marrakesh Express or the Beatles being in India, it was all part of the story. You uh, pulled the travel guide together in, uh, in a year in Sydney. Uh, what made you decide to call the company Lonely Planet? That the the name was really a mistake. We we done that first book. The book was a you know we we both had full time jobs. We were living in Sydney for a year with the intention of carrying on around the world. We we hadn't intended we'd be living in Australia nearly fifty years later. But the the, the idea of the book developed while we were living in Sydney because we, we met a lot of people who were planning to do the same sort of trip we'd done mostly in the opposite direction. They were going to start in Australia or Southeast Asia or Kathmandu and head west, whereas we did the opposite. We traveled east. But we met a lot of people who were looking for the sort of information that wasn't readily available at the time. And then the, the name of the, the business, it just sort of cropped up as a mistake, really. We were kicking around ideas of what we could call the business, and we'd just been to see a rock and roll band on the road film called Mad Dogs and Englishmen and Joe Cocker, who's the sort of star of the film, sings a, a song called Space Captain and there's a line that I thought was about a, a lonely planet, although actually he was actually singing Lovely Planet. So it's been a it's been a mistake a mistake for a long time. And one of your early guides was uh, to India, uh, uh, arguably one of the, the guides that really put Lonely Planet on the map. Um, a lot of us who've been to India uh, worry about uh, the role we're playing as travellers, uh, the potential for, for us to uh, contribute positively or not so positively towards a country. Now, how do you think about being uh, an ethical traveller, particularly when you're travelling to uh, a quite a poor country? I think it's one of the questions that we at Lonely Planet sort of tr tried to address from the very beginning. That if you go to a place, you've, you, you've got to go in with some understanding of what, what you're doing and how you're looking at the place. And I'm, I'm not enthusiastic about badly behaved travellers. And I, I don't think you do get them in India. You know, you go, go to the beach at Goa and the, you know, Goa, Goa is the sort of place in India where there's going to be bad traveller behaviour. That's the... That's the headquarters for it. It, it, it isn't as, as much in India. I think most travelers in India go there with a real interest in the place. It's, it's too big a place to take lightly. You've got to have an interest in the, the religion, the history, the, the culture. You, it, it isn't, uh, I think that's what made the book so, so pleasurable to do and why it did succeed so much. There was a big story to tell. And if you're going to a place that has a big story and you're trying to tell that big story, well, it comes out in an important fashion. 
you've uh, spoken before about the challenge that Lonely Planet faced in India where you were such a big chunk of the market that uh, when you named a restaurant in a particular city, sometimes that restaurant would be, uh, would be overrun. How did you go about creatively dealing with that uh, challenge? That was, a, that was a challenge in India. It was a challenge in other countries as well. I think one that is often cited is Vietnam because we were, we were very early in the, the picture in Vietnam. We, we did a guidebook to Vietnam when it was still easy to get arrested for going to the wrong place. And then Vietnam just took off as a destination very rapidly. And because we were first in, we, we did have a very dominant market position there. And we, we realized pretty early on that you, if you do hold that sort of strength, you've got to be careful how you use it. You can't go around saying, this is the best restaurant in town. You, if you're in this place, you must eat in this restaurant because you're going to send everybody there if you've got the only guidebook and you're the, the main influence. So we, we learned pretty early on that even if there was a place that, and it's rare that one place is miles better than everything else. But if it was, if, nevertheless, it was the best place, but marginally the best. You, you never said that. You just said, it's a good restaurant and the one down the street's good as well. You, you, you have to take care that your, your influence didn't become too strong. What about travelling to countries that are run by dictatorial regimes? Um, you've, you've been to North Korea, for example. Um, I know my parents, who are Southeast Asia specialists, um, wrestled with the thought as to whether they should travel to Burma slash Myanmar while it was uh, uh, under a strongly dict dictatorial regime, um, ultimately deciding to go but to be quite careful about how they spent their money. Uh, are, there, are there countries you think we shouldn't go to until the government uh, improves or do you think in general there is a value of, of being a tourist in an authoritarian regime because you can chat with ordinary people about the world outside? Yeah, I, I think there is a value. I, I think, you know, there's, there's no place that you can look at and get an absolutely straight picture on it. And Burma and Myanmar was certainly one where we, we got a lot of criticism and we, we believed that um, visitors to Myanmar did, did do the right thing by going there. Um, and of course, <laughs> more recently, we've been, you know, we were criticized for not supporting um, Aung San Suu Kyi and, um, sending people there, and then, you know, more recently we've been criticised for supporting Aung San Suu Kyi and sending people there. So, <laughs> effectively, you can't win. You're going to get whacked either way. I think the apartheid situation in South Africa was a very interesting one. Um, and I, you know, even today, I don't have a real answer to that. But I, I think the tourists are, they're, they're a witness to what's going on. And I think that's very important. And I think, you know, one of the places that I've been to, reasonably recently is I, I was in in Israel and Palestine and the West Bank and occupied Jordan or whatever else you want to call it you know you could you can call it a half a dozen different names and I think that going there is very important and I think if you just went to to Israel and only ever saw things from the Israeli side of the wall you you wouldn't get a real a real picture of it and the, the last time I was there I, I did some walking on the Israel National Trail with some Israeli friends and a, a fairly well-known Israeli journalist. But also, I travelled around Palestine and I um, I did walks in Palestine with um, people who lived their lives in refugee camps there. And it's you know I think it's 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 important to see both sides. 
you do a lot of uh, solo travelling, I understand. Uh, what, what do you enjoy about travelling uh, on your own? Look, I, I do do solo traveling, and I, I do traveling with friends, and Maureen, my wife, and I travel together, and we, we travel with larger groups, so there, there isn't any one specific um, type of travel that you do, that I do. But I, I've got to say, I do like solo travel, because you never have any arguments about where you're going to stay or where you're going to eat. Maureen, you know, born in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and the Irish aren't terribly keen on the sea. It's a <laughs> cold. So, um, and, and whereas I grew up in tropical places in Pakistan and the Bahamas and did like the sea and I'm a keen scuba diver and more than that. So, I mean, most recently in that sort of context, I, I went to Vanuatu last year by myself. But of course, you're never by yourself. You always meet people and you, you know, you, you very rarely have a meal by yourself, even if you've gone off on a solo trip. I think uh, Paul Thoreau wrote in one of his books, maybe um, Pillars of Hercules, about the fact that when you're travelling on your own, your train can pull into a station and on a whim you can just decide to get off and explore that town. Uh, and you could never do that, he says, travelling with someone else. Yeah, there's, there's an element of truth in that. And, you know, certainly our, our hippie trail travels, that was very much made up as we went along. And, of course, in those days you couldn't have things booked ahead you know, if you wanted to book something ahead, you have to send a letter a month ahead. You'd never know when you're going to arrive. It's not like today when you can pull your phone out and even at the train station when you arrive, get a hotel booked. It's entirely different. But yeah, there, there, there is that virtue of solo travel that you can make up your own mind. You don't have to worry about anybody else. I feel like I need to get for the listeners and for myself a few more sort of practical tips on how to, how to travel. Uh, I assume you travel pretty light. Uh, are, there, are there things that uh, you regard as essential or uh, things that you, you never bother taking, you figure you don't need? Look, I, I, I do try and I've got better and better at traveling light because I've realized that, you know, we, technical equipment we need, you know, if I don't have my laptop with me, I am unhappy because I... I do like to note down what's happening, and my, my handwriting is so bad that if I just wrote it in a notebook, I wouldn't be able to read it the next day. So I'm not happy until things are, are recorded on the laptop. And of course, we, we all we have to have a mobile phone these days. And I, I think back of travel when if you wanted to make an international phone call, you had to find a phone office and book it and come back in 48 hours' time and, and sit around for hours making a call, whereas... Now, you know, we all have our phones and, you know, things come up instantly. But you really do not need that much. One of the things I always say is when you're traveling, particularly by yourself, no one knows if you've only got three shirts and one of them is the one on your back, one of them is the one that's drip drying on the, on the shower rail right now, and one of them is waiting to be worn tomorrow. Uh, you know, you, you don't need a, a lot of things. It's not like being in an office where people saw you in the red shirt, the blue shirt, and the green shirt, one, two, three, day after day. They'd be beginning to wonder about your wardrobe. I was going to ask you, too, about uh, uh, how you travel. Do you have a preference between uh, uh, driving or public transport? No, I've, I've got, you know, every trip um, it works out how it works out. and. You know, we, we all do fly far too much these days, so um, flying is, well, not at the moment, of course, right now, we're not doing very much flying at all, but um, flying is a, is a part of it. 
have to say, hitchhiking comes up lots of places. Once I said, well, I'm going to this afternoon go down to the end of the island to see where the first missionaries um, um, landed. And he said, I'll oh, take my car. And so he said, I'll be work at 12.30. I'm just down the road from your, your guest house. I'll leave the car in the driveway. And I thought, well, that's a hitchhiking first. <laughs> Get picked up by, um, by somebody who hands you the car keys and says, use my car for the afternoon. It's extraordinary, the uh, the generosity of people you meet. And it always surprises me that people are, uh, that, that those who don't travel very much uh, are so worried about the threat of crime. Uh, I mean, I've been in some strange situations in places like Guatemala and so on, but almost invariably the uh, the upside of travel uh, outweighs any nervousness you might have about the occasional pickpocket. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I've, I have to say I have had the odd thing stolen over the years, but only ever once was it stolen in a, an unpleasant fashion. Most of the time it was just my own carelessness. You know, you leave things lying around and they disappear and it serves you, serves you very well right. But, uh, but far more of the time you experience the kindness of strangers. And I, I've had lots and lots of kindness of strangers' experiences over the years. And I, I hope I've, you know, given back a little bit. I've I picked up lots of hitchhikers as well as being picked up as a hitchhiker. So um, I, I hope it does go both ways. But yeah, kindness of strangers is certainly something you do encounter in, in travel. I would say, Maureen and I, we, we arrived in Australia. We, um, we hitched, hitchhiked to Australia. We got a ride on a, a yacht down from some New Zealanders down from Bali. And we got dropped off on a beach at Exmouth in the Northwest Cape, and then we hitchhiked down to Perth. But our first night and several days hitchhiking to get from get from up on the the far further north than the West Australian coast. Um, and the first night we um, ended up sleeping in the back of somebody's station wagon in their garage. And I thought, well, here I am. I'm in Australia, and what am I doing? I have seen kangaroos by the road already, which is. I mean, a lot of tourists don't see for a while. And I'm sleeping in the back of someone's, someone's station wagon. What do you know? Do you think hitchhiking is dead now? No, not in the, certainly not in tourist straits. If you, if you go to the tourist strait islands, you're going to have to hitchhike because there's no public transport. And, you know, how do you get around from place to place? You haven't got a car with you. And there's lots of places in the world where I've, um, I went, where have I quite recently? I was in, um, I was in Armenia. And um, I did some walking there, and you know, how do I get back to the town I've walked from? Well, I stand by the roadside and put my thumb out, and someone picked me up every time. And that's been in the last 12 months. So yeah, there's lots of places where you know, hitchhiking still does exist. But it, it certainly, you know, in the Western world, you, I haven't seen a hitchhiker in Australia for a long time. Whereas once upon a time, I did a fair amount of hitchhiking in Australia. And, picked up lots of people. New Zealand, it went on in New Zealand for much longer than other places. Whether it still does happen in New Zealand, I don't know. Ireland was another place where hitchhiking continued much longer than in the other parts of the Western world. I remember uh, one of my favourite hitchhiking experiences was being in London on Christmas Day and uh, all the public transport shuts down. We didn't have a car and so my brother and I decided we would hitchhike into the Christmas Day service at Westminster Abbey 
uh, and it was raining and uh, we ended up walking about two-thirds of the way uh, to get there before being uh, picked up by a uh, poor guy in a battered car. Uh, and then coming back, we had almost exactly the same experience. It was somebody who was uh, you know, down on their luck themselves who, uh, who reached, out, reached out and generously picked up these couple of uh, drowned Aussie rats and, uh, and, and brought us to our destination. Well, well done. Uh, so, what do you think is uh, is going to be the future of travel in the in the world of of COVID nineteen? You saw Lonely Planet through September eleven, which I know you were worried might spell the doom in the company. Uh, do you think we're going to get back to travelling, or do you think now we're we're moving into quite a different phase? The guidebooks of the Lonely Planet, although I've got nothing to do here anymore, I still do have a sort of ear to the ground what's happening to it, and it's. It has been badly hit because if people aren't getting on planes and flying places, then they aren't buying guidebooks either. And I, I know other guidebook publishers are in, in much the same boat. And of course, guide, travel publishing, travel information was changing enormously anyway. We're much, much more likely to just look things up as we need them on our phones or our tablets or our laptops or whatever. You don't necessarily go to guidebooks as much. I still use guidebooks, and if I'm going somewhere, I will always have a guidebook with me, although it may well be digital rather than, rather than on paper. But I think more important than that is just are we going to get back to travel? Obviously in Australia, we, you know, we can't even travel from one state to another. We can Victoria virus center at the moment. We're, we're not wanted in other states. And uh, you know we, we can't go overseas at all. And, that's, how, that's the situation in lots of other places. Americans are suddenly find, finding that they're not wanted in the outside world because their situation is so bad. And I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens in, in Europe. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially happening right now, whatever is happening. And if, it's, if travel is still popular, if it doesn't have bad effects, we, we just don't know. It's, the, it's a watching, the, um, watching the news from moment to moment to find out what's happening. But I think what is interesting is that there are there will be lots of situations where people think, well, this is an opportunity to rethink what's happened with travel. And I'm, I'm, I've got a number of little projects going on, and one of them is I'm working with a New Zealand group who are putting a small book together about what the situation for travel is going to be in New Zealand after the pandemic. And part of that's driven by New Zealand was one of the places that was talking pretty seriously about over-tourism. When we, we talk about it in Europe, you know, there's too many tourists in Barcelona and those damned cruise ships and the canals in Venice or I, mm. the Grand Canal. Um, too much of it happening in Amsterdam. Well, it was a similar situation in New Zealand. That there was discussions about too many people on the walking trails and too many um, tourists coming and not knowing which side of the road to drive on, which is more of a problem in New Zealand where you don't have so many big freeways and so on that keep the cars on the right and the left. Um, there, there were tourists from a certain country who were not looked upon very, very favorably because they came to New Zealand and tended to spend very little money and um, didn't make themselves very... And amazingly, the opposite extreme, New Zealand is also a center for the preppers. The people who have um, come there to wait for the end of the world. Ah, yes, these Silicon Valley billionaires with their uh, New Zealand bolt holes. That's absolutely right. You know, they're, they're digging their bunkers around Queenstown and the <laughs> Queenstown airport is stuffed with the private jets. So, you know, New Zealand has, 
as well, if you're looking at tourist, tourism problems, they've got several different um, different versions of it. Well, I know you've also been critical of the idea of the weekend getaway too, go, if, spending uh, a lot of uh, money and carbon emissions just for a couple of days, as distinct from from going for a month. And perhaps we'll move away from away from that sort of short term trip to to more quality uh, tourism. Yeah, well, that, that that's a problem, particularly in Europe. And I I think where this whole thing about you know well it's it's Friday, where shall I fly for the weekend? Um, was driven by Europe and there are a lot of cheap airlines and lots of opportunities to go to the other side of Europe and particularly, I mean, there, there was all the talk about Bucks Nights, boys, boys weekends out in Prague and going there and behaving terribly and drinking far too much and making yourself very unpopular. But the flip side, I think you've always got to, any situation you look at, you've got to, to look at the other perspective on it. and. For all the fact that um, the, the cheap airlines, the Ryanairs, the EasyJets, the, the Wiz, the, there's an assortment of them, Pegasus, Vueling, um, did you know take people to a lot of the big destinations in big quantities and for, for very short trips that's not necessarily a good thing. But they also opened up lots of places that people just weren't aware of. And I, I remember a couple of years ago I stumbled upon Plovdiv in Bulgaria and I'd become a you know, an ambassador for Plovdiv saying, if you're in Bulgaria, if you're in Eastern Europe, you know, make a beeline to this really interesting second string city. It's not one of the big ones that people go to. It's not one of the Prague, Budapest, Vienna sort of cities. It's a second echelon city and, and worth seeing. And I think, you know, that's the sort of place that um, wider travel can open up. It wasn't necessarily getting visitors before. And, you know, the, wasn't suffering from over-tourism and was very happy to accept the visitors they did get. You've also recently written a book on islands of Australia, which seems particularly apt if uh, the boom in tourism, in the short term at least, is going to be in domestic tourism. Uh, what are some of the, the islands around Australia that uh, our Aussie listeners should visit? Well, you know, there's all the ones we know about very well. You know, what's the single biggest tourist attraction in Australia? The, penguins on, on Phillip Island and you know where's a place we need to go back to to suddenly need some support of Kangaroo Island after the bushfires. But we've got lots of islands that the, the, the one that really impressed me that I, I was really sort of blown away by was Durakartog Island off the coast of WA which has got a lot of really interesting history to it, it's got a lot of interesting natural history to it. And it's not 100% easy to get to. It's a place really for a good four-wheel drive to drive up on the tracks and then take the, the barge that takes you across. But if you can get there, I just thought it was a, an amazing island. And I, I spent three or four days there, really enjoyed it. And we'd like to go back and, and see some more of that island. And there's lots of others. I, I was really pleasantly surprised by Rotnest. But I, I've been to Rottnest mm. before, and I, I thought, look, I, I don't need to go to Rottnest again for this book. I've, I've seen it. I know what it's like. I've, I've looked. I've taken the selfie with the clock, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and I went to the Rottnest for a few days, and I really enjoyed it. I was really surprised how, how pleasant it was. You know, there's very few cars, so it's a great island for cycling in, and it's big enough that it's sort of sorts out the people who don't want to cycle more than a couple of hundred meters because you're going to have 
cycle for 10 or 20 meters if you want to break out 20 kilometers if you really want to get around the island. And I've, I've really enjoyed watching this all over again. I can see why the people in Perth and Fremantle, it's such a popular weekend getaway because it's a delightful island. And of course, it's also an island with some, some real history to it as well, some, some really sad history. But it was a place where the indigenous population got very badly treated and they, their, their story there was really ignored for many years. So it's a, it's a good island to see that side of Australia as well. I imagine too, as a uh, serious cyclist, you would have loved being able to just ride everywhere on Rottnest. It was one of my, my delights last time we were there. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, you know, it does have um, remarkably good bicycles to hire. What about uh, virtual reality, Tony? Do you think if there's a move away from tourism, that uh, as the quality of virtual reality improves, that these sort of immersive experiences uh, will become more common? Or is that, is that always going to remain the stuff of science fiction? No, I, I, I suspect it is going to become more popular. And I've, I've, I can't say I've had a huge amount of experience. I've, I've been with people who have been putting together virtual reality things while I've been with them, and I've not been knocked out by it. But then that's it's early days, you know. These these things will all change and improve. And you know, there's there's a lot to be said for. Um, I always say, you know, the the amusement park Disney thing. Well, that's great. I'm not very keen on it myself, but if if it does um, take a lot of people there, and it, it creates more space elsewhere. So off you go to Disney World or, or etc. I approve of it. And really, the same with cruise ships. They're, they're the, they've been the, the dark story of the coronavirus epidemic, but no doubt they will come back. The cruise ship enthusiasts are, are so enthusiastic about them that they, I'm sure they'll get back on them again. That's interesting you say that. So my prior is the opposite. I, I would have thought the cruise ship industry will be maybe a quarter of its size uh, in, in a decade's time. I don't know. That's, that's a very good question. You, know, you could probably take... Take lots of bets on that. And of course, there are all sorts of different cruise ships. But even though um, I'm not a cruise ship enthusiast, there are some things if you want to go there, you're going to have to go on a cruise ship. You know, if you're going to go to Antarctica or up to the Arctic or Svalbard or an assortment of other places, but these are, these are smaller cruise ships. I mean, you, you couldn't get around the Galapagos Islands on a 5,000 passenger vessel. You know, it's not, a, it's not remotely conceivable. So the, um, the smaller ones, that's a, that's a different story. The, the, the huge things, yeah, I don't know. I, but the people who love them, love them. And I, I think it's because it's almost, it's not a sort of travel that I go for, but it's, it's, um, it's comfort travel. You know, there's comfort food, and cruise ships are comfort travel. You don't have to think about where am I going to stay tonight. You don't have to think about where am I going to eat tonight. You don't have to think about any of this stuff. You don't think about how am I going to get to the next place. The whole thing is done for you. And for a lot of people, that's what they want. And you will think if they're young families or, I, think, you know, I, sh I shouldn't say old people because I am an old person. But uh, if that's your bag, well, go for it. Yes, I mean, I can understand the, uh, the attraction of being able to travel overnight and have your hotel come with you. It's just the, uh, uh, the, the way in which cruisers seem to uh, move into 
people just spending time on the boat uh, rather than exploring new parts of the world, which for me is the very essence of, uh, of travel. Now, Tony, you're, you're not only one of the world's great travellers, but also uh, a very successful businessman. Uh, you've got an MBA uh, and you've done what many people imagine they will do, but never really seem to pull off, which is to create a successful business uh, with your spouse. Uh, what tips do you have for succeeding in business with the person with, with whom you're also sharing your personal life? How did you and Maureen manage that? You've got to, you've got to divide things up and you've got to decide, you know, you do this bit and I won't interfere and I'll do that bit and you won't interfere. And, um, fortunately, that sort of happened in a natural fashion in some ways. But we, we both enjoyed travel. I mean, we wouldn't have carried on and um, and as well out of it as we did do it. We didn't both enjoy the travel, so it was very important for both of us. But I think the, uh, the, the particularly the, the sort of the guidebook nitty-gritty side of it, that was much more, and I, I think it's in, perhaps in a way, it's, I, I was an engineer to start with, and I've, I've often say, said that engineers make good guidebook writers because they, they're used to getting all the square pegs and the square holes and the making sure that there's no parts missing at the end of the day, there's no loose nuts and bolts left on the floor. There, and that's important with guidebooks. And guidebooks, everything has got to fit together and you can't have any bits and pieces missing out of it. It's got to be assembled correctly. So um, I, the fact that I was an engineer, I think was a, a good thing when it came to guidebook writing. How do you resolve where you've got tension in that relationship and you're both going home to the same, same house? Yeah, well, it was. I think that was particularly a problem when the business was very small, when we were working at home, and you know, you could always have dinner and then go straight back to work again. And it really made a big change, change, an improvement in our life when you know the business became it was an office somewhere else, and when you left at usually far too late at night, but when you left and locked the door, you were leaving it behind until the next day. So yeah, there, there is that problem. And I, we, we've often said that, you know, some of our most important business meetings have been held at 2 a.m. because when you work at are you awake? What are you, what are you worrying about? And say, so I'm worrying about this. And you, you hold the board meeting there and then and decide what you have to do. So yeah, you know, you, you don't escape from it if you're, you're working together on that sort of thing. But I think we, we did survive things up to a certain extent and she looked after some things. She was much better on the, the people side and the, that side of the business and I was better on the, the guidebook side and that side of it. You've uh, described yourself as the architect and Maureen as the carpenter, I think, in, uh, in, in the past. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a bad description. Uh, you're also uh, uh, an extraordinary writer, uh, churning out, churned out uh, millions of words. Do you have uh, uh, particular routines and rituals around how you write? Do you write first thing in the morning? Do you have a place in the in the house where you write? Do you write in cafes? Do you write longhand or on the la on the laptop? I do take notes on. I put my holding up my paper notebook right now, which you know has got lots of scribbled down notes in, either because. It's one of those situations, you could write it on your phone, but it's sort of rude to pull the phone out and look like you're making a phone call when actually all you're doing is writing something down. So yeah, I do write things down on paper, but really not much. Most of it is, most of it is digital. And I don't have any particular, I, you know, sometimes I, I write intensively and sometimes I have trouble getting the words out. I don't suffer from 
writer's block too often, and, and I'm not a great, I don't think of myself as a great writer at all. I, I read stuff written by people who can really write, and I am extraordinarily jealous of them. Do you, uh, do you enjoy writing in, uh, in cafes when you're on the road? Do you do a lot of your writing there? Um, yeah, I, I do some writing in cafes, but not a huge amount. I'm, I'm not a sort of someone who can linger over the, the cafe latte and make it last for an hour and a half. I'd start to feel guilty about it. I've got that sort of you know, the guidebook thing that I realise how these businesses work and they work by getting you in and selling you a coffee and then selling another one to somebody else. So I, I wouldn't feel happy to stay around. I, I, I know people do. I know people use um, lots of places that have good Wi-Fi as their as their office, but it's not um, not something I've done. Having said which, I've got a, a cafe in um, in Melbourne that I I really use as my Melbourne office, and I always, if I'm going to meet somebody, I always say, you know, let's meet at that meet at that cafe, and um, the cafe know me quite well, and they, they're. Maybe I don't hang around, you know, it's a one-hour meeting and I'm in for an hour and I'm gone at the end of the hour, so they know I'll come and go. And they always, always seem quite happy to see me, so who knows. They may be using the fact that they, uh, the Tony Wheeler's Cafe is a promotional tool, you never know. It's, it's a cafe where actually a lot of um, journalists and writers and things meet. You, you very often look across it and think, oh, you know, I haven't met that person, I do recognise them. Man who wrote um, Ladies' Detected Agency. I spotted him in there once. Very impressive. Uh, you're also a, a philanthropist and uh, must think a lot about how to uh, effectively give back for uh, to, to improve the, the well-being of people in developing countries. Uh, do you subscribe to the effective altruist movement, to the Peter Singer philosophy on, on altruism? How do you think about the giving that the Wheeler Foundation does? I'm not sure what Peter Singer's view on this is. I have to look it up after we finish talking. Well, pure utilitarianism. You should try and uh, save the most lives or do the most good uh, in, in, in your, your altruism. Yeah, well, look, we, we started this long before I left Lonely Planet. We, we started it at Lonely Planet, and it was effectively that we, we were sitting up, as you tend to do on Friday night when the office had closed and having a beer in the pub across the, ro the road. And, um, we, we, and it was a time when things were going seriously wrong in Ethiopia. And we, we said, look, we, we're doing these books on Africa. We're making money from Africa. We should be putting money back into Africa as well. And we started on that Friday night um, a, a policy of putting a percentage of the company's money turnover or profits back into, um, into good things. And that was relatively easy to do because a lot of our writers would come back and tell us, hey, we've been in this country and we've, we've seen this school or this hospital or it was surfers in um, some of Sumatra who sometimes had medical expertise and if the, if the waves were low, they end up you know, setting up some little medical thing in the village they were in, that sort of thing that uh, started it for us. Um, and it, it grew to be quite a reasonable size. We actually did have it, this little office within the office that dealt with giving away the money. But of course, when we sold the business, we couldn't say, oh, by the way, you bought a business and you bought a philanthropic organization as well. So we, we pulled the, planet, the Lonely Planet Foundation out of Lonely Planet. And quite a lot of the money that we got from selling Lonely Planet, we put into it and we we renamed it the Planet Wheeler Foundation, and we currently got 60 or 70 projects in the developing world 
mainly education and health, and a lot of it was Southeast Asia and South Asia at first, and now it's moving much more into Africa, so a lot of the stuff we do is in Africa. And um, I'm still, I don't, I don't well, do the board meetings and sort of rubber stamp the, the projects, but I, I'm not involved in the day-to-day basis. I've got really good people who really know what they're doing in that field, who, who do that and basically decide where the money's going to go to. I think it's been a good thing. I've been, I've been pleased with it, proud of it. I also want to ask you as a parent uh, how you think you've done raising uh, peripatetic kids. Uh, how Have you managed to inculcate a, a love of travel among your children? And, and how do you think parents should, should go about doing this? Oh, they should definitely take me traveling because I, I think travel, you know, opens up. The, they may not remember it later on. Now, now I remember our kids saying, did I go there? And he said, of course you would be there when you were... Seven years old, don't you remember we did this and did that? No, it's, the memory's gone. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I think it's a good thing. And I, I think they did, they, they, def- they definitely did enjoy it. I remember once, one fairly recently, one of them was around here with their partner, and the partner said, now, do you have any photographs of when, when he was traveling with you when he was a child? And um, I said, oh yeah, and we pulled out a photo album, and you know, there were all these photographs, and he said, we look so happy. And I, they, they sort of got this um, message, you know, they, they, they told other people, oh, we were, our parents dragged us everywhere. It was terrible. We, you know, we never got to just go to the beach at school holidays, vacations. We, we got dragged off to the developing world and taken to this temple and that national park and something else and something else. And actually, they had a great time. They, they really enjoyed it. And the, the photographs tell you that. But I, I think it's, it's a good thing, and neither of our kids were going to go really into the business, which is why, one of the reasons why we sold it in the end, we, it wasn't going to become a family dynasty. But um, both of them are good travelers, and my daughter travels today more than my son, I'd say, and she's been, um, worked a lot with our foundation, so I remember I was traveling with her a couple of years ago in China, in China, in Southeast Asia. And uh, I, I walked up to the hotel desk and handed our passports in. I was flicking through her passport as I handed it over and thought, my God, I didn't know she'd been there. Oh, I'd better be in that country. And she'd been <laughs> to a, a number of places in Africa that I hadn't ventured to, but she'd been there looking at the projects we were doing. And I've heard you speak before about how they learned to bargain in Egypt, which made me think of uh, the three years that my brother and I spent as kids in Indonesia, where one of the key uh, skills we learned was uh, never to accept the first price you're offered. Yeah, we we had a story about um, going between the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Nobles in Luxor and telling our kids we weren't going to take a taxi, we were going to walk over the hill and down the other side. And Maureen and I, walking up the hill, because they were sort of trying to go on strike and say they weren't coming with us. We knew if we got up the hill they'd eventually join us and looked down the hill and saw them riding up on donkeys and some farmer had come by with two donkeys and they'd negotiated a price to ride his donkeys up the hill and I was highly, <laughs> amused, highly amused by that. Very nice. Um, Tony, uh, let me wrap up by asking you a couple of questions I ask uh, all of my guests. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, look, I, I think I'd go, you know, I, I tell you what I'm going to do in my next lifetime. I'm going to put a lot more effort into learning languages. 
And I, I was, I was one of those people at school that I, I ended up with, say, doing science and engineering. But I really enjoyed history and English just as much as maths and physics. But I, I just didn't see that as what as a, a long-term occupation for some reason, even though that's what I did end up doing effectively. But um, I, I was never as good at languages. I they were always my weakest subject, and I, I did a, you know, I passed the exams and I did okay, but. They, they weren't something that I, I really um, had a natural empathy and ability at. And if I'm going to live another life, I'm going to spend more effort on languages. I'm insanely <laughs> jealous of people who speak lots of languages. Do you try and speak a bit of the local tongue when you're in a country? Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, and I've, I, I've done evening classes and <laughs> lunchtime things in a number of languages. And you know, I've done a, a smattering of this and a smattering of that. But I'm not someone who um, it comes to naturally. I'm always pleased when I can, you know, count to ten and ask what time the bus leaves. And um, you know, being asked for a cerveza fria, a cold beer, is always a good thing. I think. And it always feels like it's uh, it's easier to learn a language when you're in country. I remember uh, doing a, a three-month trip through Europe and just going through one uh, phrase book after another as we went to do different countries. And, uh, yes, when, when you're going into the restaurants and the bars and you're chatting to locals all the time, uh, that immersion just uh, just makes it feel like a, a relevant skill that you can throw yourself into. That really does. And I think one of the other things is that you, you can end up going to lots of places where... Both of you are speaking in a foreign language. You know, if you go to Morocco or French Polynesia, you know, French is the, maybe the language, but it's not the first language for, for me or for them. And you suddenly find, oh, my French is much better than I expected. Um, and it's because you're, two of you are dealing in a language that you're not, you know, isn't, wouldn't be your first language if you were speaking to personal friends. In Indonesia, we used to have uh, some uh, friends who were Dutch kids, and uh, they couldn't speak English. We couldn't speak Dutch, so we all uh, communicated in Indonesian. And it's a great, and Indonesian is a great language to learn. You know, I, I can get by a little bit in Indonesian, and it's a, a wonderful language. When are you most happy? Uh, I've often said I'm most happy in the departure lounge because then I, I know I'm going somewhere, but I'm, I'm on my way to some trip. I'm, there's a great quote from um, the American writer Joan Didion, who says the, the best views I've ever seen in my life have been out of airplane windows. And, and there's a, a certain element of that that I've very often looked out of airplane windows and thought, that just looks fabulous. And I wish I was down there at ground level appreciating it. And I've got to say, it's on the airplanes where I have uh, been most keen to read your guide guidebooks. Uh, something about a you know, I'll buy a lonely planet. It will sit around for weeks before the trip. But then when I'm on the plane, suddenly now I want to read it because it's got that that immediacy about it. Uh, so uh, so nothing nothing focuses the mind on a lonely lonely planet guide like being on a plane. No, no. You, well, the first thing you're thinking of is you know when I get there, a how do I get through immigration? Is there some secret and B, how do I get into town? Is this a place where you can take the bus or the train or trust the taxi drivers? Or is it a place where the taxi drivers are inherently untrustworthy and you have to be on guard from day one? 
And then when we get back, and I guess I can say this now that you've sold the company, uh, I, I'm always in the habit of giving away the Lonely Planet guides. I feel as though if I'm chatting to someone who's a student who's thinking about travelling to a certain country, it's like, here, take my Mexico guide. If I go back to Mexico, I'll buy the updated edition then. So it's nice to have just keep the guides in circula circulation. Uh, Tony, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, I, I don't know. I probably... I, I used to say running because um, I used to run a lot and then I, I gave up on running as my older age knees decided it wasn't such a good idea. But I, I think, you know, both, we, we do need variety in life. We do need physical exercise as well as mental exercise. And you know, I'm a, I do read a hell of a lot. And, um, but also I, I get exercise a, a reasonable amount. I'm a, not a real gym junkie, but I do go to the gym several times a week and I cycle places a lot and um, and I also need a good glass of red wine at the end of the day so you know I don't I don't follow any any particular pattern and you're an intrepid cyclist too I love your tale of uh, getting a new bike and deciding to just uh, ride it from London to Paris yeah that was a great trip I, I, I almost like to do it again I just a day or two ago I was reading an account by a young woman who decided to ride a much, much better trip than that. She went from London to Istanbul. It took her three months. And I was reading her account of this, and I said, no, oh, I'd like to be out there, <laughs> instead of being locked up as I am at the moment, to be out there riding a bicycle across Europe. That'd be great fun. Do you have any guilty pleasures? You know, if I was really guilty about them, I wouldn't be telling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely, I've got guilty pleasures, and I'm going to keep them secret. Um, look... <laughs> You know, at the end of the week, I think I probably had a little bit too much red wine during the week. But um, you know, I, I never, I never drink before beer o'clock time, so um, that's probably a, a sign that I keep it under control. And finally, Tony, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? You know, I, I'm a great believer in um, in the, the it wasn't called the gap year when I started out, but I think gap years are great things. I think. For young people, right? young people who, you know, they finish one phase of education and go off and travel for a year before they um, before they settle down to more education or, or work or whatever. Um, that has a, a great great value. And I there's a Spanish author Ana Briongos who um, who wrote a book about her travels when she was young. And she has a paragraph in that which just to me, absolutely sums up the whole reason why um, why travel is a good thing and why for young people in particular it's a good thing. That you go out and you meet people at the direct face-to-face -face, um, face -face level and if you're young and you're a little bit penniless, you know, you, you don't have money interfering with the, um, the response and the connection. It's not a, an, an us and them thing that you're the person flashing the money around. And um, she just, in this one paragraph, I really thought, summed up the, the ethics of travel in a, in a really good fashion. Well, Tony Wheeler, social traveller and Lonely Planet co-founder, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Good to talk thanks to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. Have you enjoyed this discussion? I reckon you'll love past interviews with Deborah Rickwood, Peter Singer and Tim the Yowie Man. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. 
Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.